13, established already described, and that the morning shell necklace, which in the case of an ordinary man is only worn by distant relatives, is worn by all the married men and women of the clan who have or can procure it. The subsequent ceremony and feast are in this case held one or two days after the funeral. The acceleration in the case of a chief being necessary in consequence of the retention of the corpse above ground and the foul smell which immediately begins to emanate from it. This feast is on a very large scale, though here again only one community is invited. The guests enter the village just as they do in the case of the death of an ordinary person, but they are all specially well decorated, and the one guest who comes in full dancing ornaments will certainly be a chief, or at least a chief's son. The subsequent part of the ceremony up to the removal of the head feather ornament from the dancer, is the same, but this removal is done by the nearest male relative of the deceased chief, who will probably be the person to whom the chieftainship has descended, then follows the feast itself, the vegetables and village pigs for the feast are provided by the whole clan, and are in very large quantities, no platform of sticks is placed on the grave, the grave in this case not being underground, but the banana leaves are placed around not under the supports of the burial platform, or around the trunk of the burial tree. The pigs are killed upon these banana leaves by the pig killer and his helpers, and the killed pigs are then placed in circles around the platform or tree, and are there cut up. The distribution of food and pig's flesh is made by the chief's nearest male relative, with assistance. Here again the special dancer getting the largest share, and the ceremony is then over, and the guests return to their villages, and now a true desertion of the village by its inhabitants takes place as indeed is necessary, as the putrefying body is becoming so offensive, and it will be at least two or three weeks before the emission of the smells is over, the villagers all go off into the bush, with the exception of two unhappy men, more or less close relatives of the dead chief, who have to remain in the village, whilst there alone they are well ornament, though not in their full dancing decoration, but in particular, though not themselves chiefs. They wear on their heads the cassowary feathers which are the distinctive decoration of a chief, and they carry their spears. There they remain amidst the awful stench of the decomposing body and all the mess and smell of the pig's blood and garbage about the village. It is a curious fact that, in speaking of these two men, the natives do not speak of them as watching over the body of the chief, but as watching over the blood of the killed pigs. When the stench is over, the villagers in the bush are informed, and they then return to the village. Then follow the killing and eating of wild pigs and sweeping down of the village, as in the case of the death of an ordinary person, but again on a much larger scale. It will be noticed that, though the desertion of the village after a big feast lasts for six months, that which follows a chief's funeral only lasts for a few weeks. The removal of the mourning takes place after an interval which may be anything between one and six months. This is a special ceremony, and will not be postponed for the purpose of tacking it on to some other ceremony as in the case of an ordinary person's morning removal, but other ceremonies will often be tacked onto it. The guests invited are from only one other community. Here again the person actually dealt with is the chief mourner, and the removal of mourning from him or her terminates the mourning for everyone. The village pigs for this occasion are provided by the dead man's family, and not by the whole clan, as in the case of a chief's funeral feast. There will probably be two or three of such pigs provided, but, as the ceremony is also available for various other ceremonies, there may be a considerable number of pigs killed. The dancing and pig killing and feast are the same as those of an ordinary morning removal ceremony, but on a larger scale. The pig killing in this case is done round the platform or tree on which the chief is buried. The buyer of the pig, 
who cuts off the mourning necklace and daubs the face of the chief mourner, if not a chief, will at all events be a person of importance, but the ceremonies relating to all these matters are identical with those already described. There is also the subsequent purification ceremony, at which wild pigs are killed and eaten as before, the graves of chiefs' wives and members of their families, and other persons of special importance, are platform or tree graves, like those of chiefs, and the funeral ceremonies on the deaths of these people are very similar to those of chiefs, though they are on a scale which is smaller, in proportion to the relative smallness of the importance of the person to be buried, and they are subject to a few detailed differences which the difference of the situation involves. The special magic ceremony for ascertaining if the patient is or is not going to die is not performed in the case of these people. Chapter XVII Religion and Superstitious Beliefs and Practices Religion and Superstitions These are subjects which I should hardly have ventured to introduce into this book if I had had to rely exclusively upon inquiries made only during my stay among the Mafulu villages without having the benefit of five years' observation by the Mafulu fathers of the mission, and, notwithstanding this additional facility, my notes on these questions will be found to involve puzzles and apparent inconsistencies, and there is no part of the book which should be read and accepted with greater reserve and doubt as to possible misunderstanding. Subject to this caution, I give the information as I had obtained it. I heard nothing to justify the idea of the Mafula people having any belief in a universal God or All-Father, but there is a general belief among them in a mysterious individual named Sidibe, who may be a man, or may be a spirit they appear to be vague as to this, who has immense power, and who once passed through their country in a direction from east to west, wherever you may be, if you speak of this personage, and ask to be told in which direction he traveled, they always point out one which is from east to west, they believe that it was Sidibe who taught them all their customs, including dancing and manufacture and that he ultimately reached and remained in the land of the white man, where he is now living, and that the superior knowledge of the white man in manufacture, and especially in the making of clothes, has been acquired from him. The idea of his ultimate association with the white man can hardly, however, be a very ancient tradition. One of the fathers was seriously asked by a native whether he had ever seen Sidib. They seem to think that he is essentially a beneficent being. They regret his having left their country, but they had no doubt as to this, and do not regard him as still continuing to exercise any influence over them and their affairs, have no ceremonies or observances with reference to him, and do not address to him any supplications. As traces of his passage through their country they will show you extraordinarily shaped rocks and stones, such as fragments which have fallen from above into the valley, and rocks and stones which have lodged in strange positions but there are no ceremonies with reference to these and the natives have no fear of them, and indeed they will proudly point them out to you as evidences of this mysterious being having been in their country, and of his power, they would not hesitate to touch one of these stones, but they would never injure it, I learned nothing about him which would justify me in suggesting that the Mafula people deified him as an ancestor, or even regarded him as being one, though some of the matters attributed to him are perhaps not dissimilar from those often attributed to deified ancestors. They certainly had a lively belief in ghosts of people who have lived and died, and in spirits which have never occupied human form, all of whom ghosts and spirits are evil disposed, and in sorcery, every human being, male and female, has during life a mysterious ghostly self, in addition to his bodily visible and conscious self and this ghostly self will on his death survive him as a ghost, 
There appears to be no idea of this ghostly self leaving the body in times of sleeping or dreaming, though, if a man dreams of someone who is dead, he thinks that he has been visited by that person's ghost. That death the ghost leaves the body, and becomes, and remains, a malevolent being. There is no idea of reincarnation, or of the ghost passing into any animal or plant, though, as will be seen hereafter, it sometimes apparently becomes a plant, and there is no difference in their minds between the case of a person who has died naturally and one who has been killed in battle or otherwise, or between persons who have or have not been eaten, or who have or have not been buried, though in case of burial there are the methods of getting rid of the ghost, and there is no superstitious avoidance of graves or fear of mentioning a deceased person by name, and no superstition as to the shadows of living persons passing over graves and sacred places except as above stated, I found no trace of any belief in a future state, when on the death of a man or woman or child, the ghostly self leaves the body, or at all events when the funeral pig killing has been performed, the ghost goes away to the tops of the mountains, where apparently it exists as a ghost forever, the shouting immediately after the death, and afterwards at the funeral, are steps towards driving it there, and the pig killing ceremony completes the process. On reaching the mountains the ghost becomes one of two things, the ghost of a young or grown-up person up to, say, 40 or 45 years of age becomes the shimmering light upon the ground and undergrowth, which occurs here and there where the dense forest of the mountains is penetrated by the sun's beams, it is apparently only the light which shimmers on the ground and undergrowth, and not that in the air, the ghost of an elderly person over 40 or 45 years of age becomes a large sort of fungus, which is indigenous to the mountains where alone it is found, any native who on a hunting expedition or otherwise meets with a glade in which this shimmering light occurs will carefully pass round it, instead of going across it, and any native finding one of these fungi will neither eat nor touch, nor even tread upon it, though indeed, as regards the eating, I understand that this particular fungus is one of the poisonous non-edible forms, a native who, after the recent death of another, is traveling in the mountains, and there finds a young fungus of the species only just starting into growth, will think that it is probably the ghost of the recently departed one, as regards the use by me with reference to both sunbeams and fungi of the word, becomes, I recognize that it may justify much doubt and questioning, the idea of actually becoming the flickering light or the fungus, as distinguished from that of entering into or haunting it, is a difficult one to grasp, especially as regards the flickering light. I tried to get to the bottom of this question when I was at Mafulu, but the belief as to actual becoming was insisted upon, and I could get no further, I cannot doubt, however, that there is much room for further investigation on the point, which is of a character concerning which misapprehension may well arise, especially in dealing with such simple and primitive people as are the Mafulu natives, the foods of these ghosts in both their forms are the ghostly elements of the usual native vegetable foods sweet potato, yam, taro, banana, and in fact every vegetable food and the ghostly elements of the excrement of the still living natives, and the ghosts come down from the mountains to the villages and gardens to procure these foods, here again the difficulty as to meaning above referred to arises, as they can hardly imagine that the flickering lights cease to flicker in their mountain glades, or that the fungi cease to exist in their mountain habitats during these food-seeking incursions, and yet, unless this be so, the superstitious difficulty is increased. A ghost is also sometimes for some reason or other dissatisfied with his mountain abode, and he will then return to the village not apparently in the visible form of a flickering light or a fungus, 
as the intentions of the ghost towards living humanity are always evil, his visits, whether for procuring food or in consequence of dissatisfaction with his habitat, are feared by the people, but I could not ascertain what was the nature of the injuries by the ghost to themselves of which they were afraid, nor could I hear of any actual instance of a disaster or misfortune which had been attributed to the machinations of such a ghost, when sleeping in their dark enclosed houses, however, the people fill up all openings by which the ghost might enter this does not apply to the Amon, the entrance openings of which are not closed at night, but perhaps the fact that a number of men are always sleeping together there gives them confidence, and when the mission station at Mafula was started the natives were amazed at the missionaries daring to sleep alone in rooms, with open doors and windows, through which the ghosts might enter, having by the shouting prior to and at the dead man's funeral wholly or partially driven his ghost to the mountains and in some way, as it would seem, further placated or influenced the ghost by the subsequent pig killing over or by his grave at the funeral feast. There is no method of which I could gain information by which the people can actually keep him there, or prevent his periodic returns to the village and gardens for food, or his return from a mountain home with which he is dissatisfied, and there are apparently no prayers, incantations or other ceremonies for the purpose of placating, or intimidating or in any way influencing the ghost. The statement is subject, however, to the existence of the practice of pig killing at the various other ceremonies before described always apparently done under or by or on the site of a chief's grave, which is evidently superstitious in character, and must have reference to the ghosts of the departed chiefs and notables, being intended, or having originally been intended, to placate or influence them in some way or other, and especially it would seem that this must be so as regards the dipping of the mourner's string necklace in dead pig's blood at the morning removal ceremony, and as regards the pig killing at the big feast, at which the skulls and bones of all the then departed chiefs and notables are carefully collected, and made the objects of ceremonious dipping in blood, or touching with bones so dipped, and after which these skulls and bones may be thrown away, as not requiring further ceremony, and concerning all these ceremonies, if we bear in mind the special fear which many primitive people seem to have of the ghosts of their great men, as distinguished from those of the unimportant ones, it seems, I think, to be natural that the graves and the skulls and bones of the great ones should be those which are specially dealt with, and the dealing with which may possibly, so far as the big feasts are concerned, have been the original purpose for which the feasts were held. The mental attitude and conduct of the people towards ghosts may have originated in some form of ancestor worship, but I found nothing now existing to indicate this, and in particular I could learn nothing of any recognition of, or ceremonial observances with reference to, the individual ghosts of known persons, as distinguished from the ghosts generally, I could find no direct information as to any belief in ghosts of animals or plants, but the fact that the living edible plants had a ghostly self upon which the human ghosts feed, seems to involve the idea during the life of those plants, and in that case one sees no reason why the ghost of the plant should not survive the plant itself, just as the ghost of the living person survives him at his death. Also the existence of a ghostly element in human excrement opens out a wide field of ghostly possibilities. Spirits which have never been human beings are also malevolent, though when we come to the operations of magic men or sorcerers, and to incantations and the use of charms, the powers in connection with all of which appear to be ascribed to spirits, it will be noticed that these are by no means necessarily and invariably engaged or used for malevolent purposes, I was not able to obtain any satisfactory information as to these spirits, 
or their supposed attributes, nor, except as regards illness and death, as to the nature of, and ground for, the fears which the natives feel concerning them, indeed, this is a subject upon which most natives all over the world are inclined to be reticent, partly or largely from fear, even as regards the sacred places which these spirits are supposed to haunt, though the natives are not unwilling to pass them, and will mention the fact that they are sacred, they are unwilling to talk about them, my notes as to spirits, other than those in connection with sorcery producing illness and death, must therefore be practically confined to the sacred places haunted by the spirits, and the demeanor and acts of the natives with reference to, and when they pass, these places, speaking generally, any place which has something specially peculiar or unusual in its appearance is likely to be regarded as the abode of a spirit, a waterfall, or a deep still pool in the course of a river but not the river itself, or a deep narrow rocky river ravine, or a strangely shaped rock come under this category. There are also certain trees and creepers which are regarded as implying the presence of a spirit in their vicinity, although that vicinity has in itself nothing unusual. I can, however, only give a few illustrative examples of this general idea. There are three special trees and two or three special creepers which imply the presence of a spirit. What the creepers are I could not ascertain, but the trees are a very large palm which grows on the mountains and not on the coast. A form of pine tree, and the gobby fig tree, used for burial of chiefs. It does not necessarily follow that every specimen of any one of these trees and creepers is spirit haunted, but some are known to be so, and all are apparently so much under suspicion that, though the natives will speak of them and will pass them, they are afraid to cut them down. At the time when the path near the newly erected mission station at Mafula was being opened some of these creepers had to be cleared away, and the mission fathers had the utmost difficulty with the natives, only two or three of whom could be persuaded to help in the work, whilst the others stood aloof and afraid. In the same way, when the fathers wanted to cut down some of the special palms, only two natives were induced to help in this, and even they only did so on the condition that the fathers themselves made the first strokes and the fathers were warned by the natives that evil would befall them. It was a curious coincidence that the father who did the street cutting, being then and having been for a long time passed perfectly well in health, was that evening taken ill with a bad sore, which nearly necessitated his being carried down to the head mission station on the coast. There is a very common ceremony performed when natives, in traveling through the country, pass a spirit-haunted spot. The leader of the party turns round, and in a low voice tells the others that they are approaching the spot, whereupon they all become silent, though up to that point they have been chattering, the leader then takes a wisp of grass and ties it in a knot, and all the others do the same, they then walk on in silence for a period, which may be anything from 5 to 15 minutes, after which, as they pass the spot, the leader turns round and throws his bunch of grass on the ground, and the others do the same, in this way they avert the danger and afterwards chatter as before. Another somewhat similar ceremony commences, like the former one, with silence, but, instead of throwing grass down as they pass the haunted spot, the visible sign of which in this case is a hole in the ground, the leader stops and looks round at the others, and then presses the palm of his hand down into the interior of the hole, and the others do the same, and after this all is safe and well, as in the former case. In traveling through the country these holes with numerous impressions of hands in them are to be seen, and you may in one day's journey pass several of these signs of haunted places, of either or both sorts, within a comparatively short distance of one another. The hole in which the people put their hands may not have originally existed, 
and may have been produced by the awful repeated pressure of hands on the ground as natives passade the haunted spot, but on this point I am unable to make any statement, nor have I been able to ascertain what the difference, if any, island or has been, between the places where they put grass and those in which they merely press the hands. I found no evidence of any general idea of supernatural powers being possessed by natural inanimate objects, such as rivers or rocks, but, as already stated, fishers are in the habit of addressing the stream in supplication for fish, and it is possible there are other examples of the same sort of thing, which I did not discover, magic or sorcery, and those who practice it, and incantations and charms, and those who supply charms, are naturally associated with either ghosts or spirits or both, among the Mafula people they are, I was assured, associated solely with spirits, and not with ghosts, and, though I have no confirmatory evidence of the accuracy of the statement, I can only in these notes assume that it is correct, it may well be, however, that in the minds of the people themselves the distinction between the ghost of a person who has lived and died and the spirit which has never lived in visible human form is not really quite clearly defined, or that powers which are now regarded by them as spirits have, had an origin, possibly long ago, in what were then believed to be ghosts. I shall revert to this point at a later stage. Sorcery. The Mafulu magic men or sorcerers are different from those of the Mako plains. There is not among the Mafulu, as there is in Mako, a large body of powerful professional sorcerers, who are a source of constant terror to the other people of their own villages and are yet to a certain extent relied upon and desired by those people as a counterpoise to the powers of sorcerers of other villages, and a Mafula native, unless prevented by a fear of outside hostility in no way connected with the supernatural, will travel alone outside his own community in a way in which fear of the sorcerers would make a Mako native unwilling to do so. The Mafulu sorcerers are a somewhat less powerful people, but they claim, and are supposed to have, certain powers of divination, or actual causation or both, of certain things, so far as I could learn, the sorcerer's supernatural powers would never be exercised in a hostile way against anyone of his own village, or indeed of his own clan, or even, as a rule, of his own community, apparently the sorcerer's victim is nearly always a member of some other community, and the sorcerers of a community do not appear to be in any way either feared or shunned by the members of that community, and, even as regards their acts of hostility against members of other communities, these do not seem to be performed to an extent in any way approaching what is found in Mako. It seemed to me at first, as regards these sorcerers, that there was a confusion in the Mafulu mind between divination and causation. The question as to this arose specially in connection with the ceremony for ascertaining whether a chief was or was not going to die. The people of a clan and the ailing chief certainly assume that the sorcerers who perform the ceremony under instructions, whether they be of the same community or of some other community, will by their magical powers nearly divine the death or recovery of the chief, and the idea does not enter their heads that these sorcerers may actually cause the death, and yet they will accuse a hostile sorcerer of causing the death by an exactly similar ceremony, and will go to a war over the matter, probably, however. It is rather a question of the sorcerer's assumed volition that island it is assumed that the friendly sorcerer does not want the chief to die, and the people rely upon him to confine himself to a divination ceremony, and not to engage in hostile sorcery, whereas a hostile sorcerer might do the latter. I may add that I was led to suspect that the burning test was regarded as being only a matter of divination, and that the causation, if it occurred, was effected by means of the previous incantation. 
There are also, besides the sorcerers, a number of specialists, who can hardly perhaps be called true sorcerers, but who have certain specific powers, or are acquainted with certain specific forms of incantation, and whose services are from time to time sought by the people. It is impossible for me to point to any definite line of demarcation between the true sorcerers and these smaller people, and it cannot be doubted that the powers of the latter, like those of the former, are, or have been, based upon the supernatural, even though they themselves do not claim to be and are not regarded as being magic men in the highest sense. I think I may regard them as being more or less the Mafulu equivalents of the Roro individuals whom Dr. Seligman calls departmental experts, dealing first with the true sorcerers. They undoubtedly include among their number the men who perform the special ceremonial already described for ascertaining whether a sick chief is or is not destined to die. They also seem to include the makers or providers of the various charms, including those which are carried in the little charm bags and the love charms used by young men. As already mentioned, there are also two other matters which are regarded as coming within the province of the true sorcerers, of which one relates to a rain and the other relates to illness and death. I will deal with them separately. The rain sorcerer is apparently merely a diviner. Dr. Seligman would perhaps include him among the departmental experts, but the fathers of the mission regard him as being a true sorcerer. He is the man to whom the people go in anticipation of a proposed important event, such as a big feast, or perhaps a fighting or large hunting expedition, to ascertain and inform them whether the period in which it is proposed that the event shall occur will be fine or wet but he does not profess to be able to do more than this, and they never expect him to prevent or bring about the rain, or in any way hold him responsible for the weather as it may in fact eventually occur. The sorcery connected with illness and death is not so simple, and there is no doubt that it is not confined to powers of divination, but includes powers of actual causation. This department of sorcery obviously includes the ceremonial in connection with the supposed dying chief, but it is not confined to the ceremony as it is generally believed by the Mafula people that sickness, which does not necessarily end in death, and death itself, can be, and commonly island brought about by the operation of sorcerers in one way or another through the medium of certain things, the only things of this nature concerning which I was able to obtain information are one the inedible part of some vegetable food which the victim has recently eaten e.g. the outside part of a sweet potato or banana or the cane part of a sugar cane and to the victim's discharged excrement or urine. I found no trace of any use for purposes of sorcery of the edible remnants of the victim's food, nor except as regards a woman's placenta, to which I shall refer presently of any part of his body, such as his hair or nails, and, in fact, the free way in which the natives throw away their hair when cut is inconsistent with any belief as to its possible use against them. First, the inedible remnants of recently consumed vegetable food, The use of this as a medium for causing illness and death is apparently confined to the case of a victim who has passed the stage of very young childhood. Why this is so I could not learn, though in point of fact a mere infant would hardly be eating such things as a regular practice. A man or a woman, however, never carelessly throws aside his own food remnants of this character, and his reason for this is fear of sorcery. He carefully keeps them under his control until he can take them to a river, into which he throws them after which they are harmless as a medium against him. The fear concerning these remains is that a sorcerer will use them for a ceremony somewhat similar to that described in connection with the death of a chief, but in a hostile way. No such precautions are taken with reference to similar food eaten by very young children. Secondly, the discharged excrement and urine. This, 
for some reason, only applies to the case of an infant or quite young child. Here again I could not learn the reason for the limitation, but it is confirmed by the fact that grown-up persons take no pains whatever to avoid the passing of these things into the possession of other people. Whereas, as regards little children, the mothers or other persons having charge of them always take careful precautions. The mother picks up her little child's excrement, and wraps it in a leaf, and then either carefully hides it in a hole in the ground, or throws it into the river, or places it in a little raised-up nest-like receptacle, which is sometimes erected near the house for this purpose, and where also it is regarded as being safe. One of these receptacles, shaped like an inverted cone, is shown in plate 91, and a somewhat similar one is seen in plate 64. As regards the urine, she pours upon it, as it lies on the ground or on the house floor or platform, a little clean water which she obtains from any handy source or sometimes from a little store which, when away from other water supply, she often carries about with her for the purpose. I could get no information as to the way in which the sorcerer would use the excrement or urine as a medium for hostile purposes, though there is apparently no process similar to that of the fire used in connection with the inedible food remnants of the adult. It will have been noticed that the mode of rendering the 